Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We are going to continue our wandering series. Uh, We have been looking at the Israelites as they they, um, were rescued by God and Moses from Egypt and the land of slavery, and they have been brought out, and we are looking at the preparation and transformation that God is doing in his people uh, to get them ready for the promised land. And uh, what God laid on my heart, I shared a little bit last week, is that there are three things that I wanted to highlight that God is doing in this time with his people. Uh, Last week I talked about how God is providing for his people, that each and every day he is taking care of their needs, uh, food and water and shelter and, and just being with them and guiding them along. And so each and every day these people are experiencing God's provision for them. And so by the time they get to the promised land, this new generation will be a generation that knows and trusts that God will take care of them because he has been taking care of them for 40 years. And so uh, this week, I wanted to look at God's presence, how God's presence shapes his people to prepare them and transform them into his uh, kingdom of priests that they would be when they enter the promised land. Before we dive into it, let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity you've given me. I thank you, Lord, for um, all the mothers out there that uh, have cared for me and, and helped raise me in, in their own shape, in their own different ways. And thank you for my, my own mother who taught me so much uh, about your love, your generosity, and your goodness. Um, I thank you for this morning that we can honor them. I pray, Lord, that as we read your word and, and study um, what you did for your people that we can learn and grow. And we just give this time over to you. It's yours. Um, and ask that you show your faithfulness to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the passage of Scripture that I want to look at for God's presence with his people is a little over 15 chapters. It's from the end of, or it's the middle of Exodus, Exodus 24, the end of that chapter, to the end of Exodus 40. I'm not there yet, Noah. Hang on. <laughs> Spoiler alert. No, we're good. Um, but I want to I cover all of that, and I would love to just sit here and read the whole thing with you, uh, but I don't think that that's probably the best use of our time. Uh, so I wanted to look at this, this chunk of scripture and this particular thing from three different lenses. Uh, and the first one is a chiasm, that this chunk of scripture that we're looking at and we're talking about the tabernacle is a chiasm. Uh, and now you can put it up there. Noah, there you go. This is what a chiasm is, and it looks like. If you've been here for a little while, uh, you've probably heard this phrase before. Uh, a teacher used to preach here all the time, Marty Solomon, and he liked to explain what chiasm was. And if you go through his Bema series, the podcast is highly recommend. It's very educational. But he talks about the Old Testament was written, and there was a, a lot of chiasms in them. And, and particularly Moses it wrote the Pentateuch, and he really liked this literary device, uh, which is a chiasm. And you can kind of see that it flows, and it kind of mirrors itself. So at some point, you start to get a repetitious cycle. You might have noticed that if you do your day, daily reading or something like that, and you're reading through the Bible and you're going through the Old Testament, you're like, why is this repeating itself so much? And why does this look so weird? Uh, well, this is why, because it's most likely a chiasm 
that is being written. And the point of a chiasm is to draw your attention to the middle, that the things at the beginning and the end, and they work their way towards the middle, and they all lay the foundation for the main point. In Western writing, we typically put our main point right at the beginning. We, we know that we have limited attention spans, so we have to write it right away. This is what we think. And then we fill up in the middle, we fill up all the evidence that goes over what we think or why we think what we think. And then by the end, the conclusion we draw is back to our main point. Hopefully we've proved our point by that point. So that's what, how we write. But however, in this literary device, you see a chiasm. The main point isn't at the beginning of the end, although those lay the foundation for it. The main point is in the middle. And so this is the, the tabernacle chiasm. That it starts off with the glory of the Lord in Exodus 24. These are all in Exodus, by the way. Exodus 24, 15 through 18, you'll see this passage where the glory of the Lord descends on Mount Sinai and Moses meets God as he ascends and, and meets with him and hears the instruction. And the next chunk of scripture, chapters 25 through 30, talks about the tabernacle and the priestly garments that they are supposed to make these specific things for God's dwelling place and for the people that are supposed to take care of it. There's a couple gentlemen that God mentions by name. These are all, this is all God talking to Moses while he's on Mount Sinai. And Bazalel and Aholiab, God mentions by name saying that I have given them special gifts. That I, they have talents and abilities that I want to use as we create this. And I, I just I really like that. That God acknowledges not only that they have these gifts, but that, uh, that he's the one that's given them to them. And he is calling them into service and in making the tabernacle. And then finally, uh, God's instructions end with Sabbath. And then something interrupts, and we'll talk about what happens in the middle. But after the middle scene, Moses decides to start explaining to all the Israelites everything that's happened, but he does it in the reverse order. He goes Sabbath, and, and then he talks about Bezalel and Aholiab, and, and then he talks about the tabernacle and the priestly garments, and then he finishes it by explaining that after they finish the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord that was on Mount Sinai now rests on the tabernacle. So you see how it mirrors itself. That this is, this is what's drawing your eye to the middle of the story. By the way, I put in your notes, most of the information that I, I'm getting from this is, is from Marty. I listened to his Bema podcast and, and a lot of this, and he stole it from Ray Vanderland. Everyone steals everything, okay? Um, and I watched Ray's stuff, and I put some of those notes. If you want to do some of, your stu- some of this study on your own, I spent all week just learning more and more about the tabernacle, and then I had to condense it all into a 30-minute thing. I'm not going to be able to cover everything. There's a really cool connection between creation and the tabernacle, and we're not even really going to dive into it very much. So I encourage you to do some more study on your own if you want. This middle passage, though, this is the middle of the chiasm. That's where Moses is trying to draw the reader's attention so that we see this middle portion as the main point, the main uh, part of this whole narrative. And what happens in the middle here is the golden calf. That as they're working, as God is giving all these instructions to Moses, they get interrupted because God's like, hey, just so you know, those people that we brought out of Egypt together, yeah, they're making an idol and they're worshiping it and they're giving it credit for taking them up out of the land of Egypt. They're taking all the things that I've done for them and now they're giving it to, giving the credit to this golden calf that they've made. Um, Moses' brother, Aaron, actually is the one that 
has the bright idea. They come to, come to him and they say that they, they come to him and say, we want to worship God. And Moses has been gone on Mount Sinai for a while. We don't really know when he's coming back. They're, apparently they're really eager to worship something. And so they go to Aaron and Aaron's like, that's a great idea. I'll make a golden calf. And so he does. And they start worshiping it. And Moses and God are talking and God's like, you, you need to go stop them. And so Moses, fresh with the Ten Commandments, comes down, comes down the mountain, hot off the press, and he's seeing them, and he's hearing dancing, and, and sees them worshiping this god, this idol, that they've created for themselves. And he smashes the Ten Commandments, smashes the two tablets, and he goes, and he, he's furious with them. Uh, he, he pleads that God, before he goes down, he pleads with God to show them mercy, and then he goes, and he gets real mad when he sees them worshiping this calf. So he burns it, grinds it up, and makes them drink, drink the little particles of gold that they, that they were worshiping. Then he calls, some, uh, he calls some people that were still faithful to God, and, and a bunch of the Levites came forward, uh, and they drew their swords, and they killed a few. Thousand of them, and so <laughs> it's not the easiest story to read. But uh, next week I get to talk about punishment. I'm not super looking forward to it. But uh, this whole moment is happening, uh, and then Moses decides to go before God and into the tent of meeting and and speak with God and ask for atonement, ask for forgiveness for the people. And the exact middle of this entire narrative. The exact middle of, of the chiasm of the tabernacle is Moses talking with God and asking him not to leave them, not to, not to abandon them, not to, to go away. He's saying, like, if, if, if you have to choose somebody else or if you have to go a different direction, then blot us all out from your book. I, I, you know, I'm just asking for forgiveness, and I'm asking that you continue to go with us. And the very middle verse of this entire chiasm, the very middle sentence that is uttered, is God's response to Moses when he's asking for atonement and that God remain with them. And it says this in Exodus 33:14. That's it. Next slide. I can read it. That's okay. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's the middle of this whole passage. That in, in spite of the fact that they had just abandoned God and were... During the wedding ceremony, if, if Mount Sinai, where Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, is what we've been equating to God's marriage to his people, then during the wedding ceremony, they're committing adultery, creating for themselves another God. And boy, if you read the story, the part that really gets me is when they start saying to this golden calf, you're the one that rescued us from Egypt. And I'm like, ooh. That's got to hurt. And so in the midst of that, in the midst of their unfaithfulness, Moses is talking with God and God tells Moses, I'm going to be with you. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The thing that Moses was most worried about. And so when Moses is writing this down and he's sharing the whole narrative of the tabernacle, the thing that he wants in the very middle of this, the main point that he wants to draw the reader's attention to, is that God will be with them. His presence will go with them. There's another verse in this narrative that I really want to point out. It's Exodus 25, 8, uh, that 
as God is telling him the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, he starts off by saying that they will make a sanctuary for him. That's, that's what they're going to build, and, and I will dwell among them. And I really like this verse because it doesn't say, make me a sanctuary and I will dwell in it. It says, make me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. That God is, is not looking for them to create a house so that he can be confined to his space. He is looking for them to create a place for him to dwell among them so that he will be with them and his presence will continue to go with them despite the fact that they're being unfaithful. His presence is going to go with them and he's asking for them to build a creative space for him to dwell amongst them. So that's the first lens, the chiasm and, and the importance of it, that God is going to dwell amongst his people to be with them as they go, and they're going to create a space for him to do that. And that whole narrative from Exodus, the end of Exodus 24 to the end of the book in Exodus 40 is all about the instructions on how to do that and them carrying it out in that middle portion of their unfaithfulness to God, but yet the fact that he is telling them, I'm still going to be with you. Next, the next lens I wanted to look at this from is actually taking a look at the tabernacle itself. So I have a, a graphic that kind of shows uh, the tabernacle for us, and you can kind of see what it would have looked like. Uh, if you want to watch Ray Vanderland stuff, I have a copy of a DVD that you can see. Uh, he actually goes and visits this place uh, in Israel where they made a, um, a replica of this. Uh, and it's really cool to get to see. But this is what the tabernacle would have looked like. This outer courtyard that would have been built, uh, the altar where they would have burned the, or killed and burned the offerings, and the washing basin, and then you move into, and you can see on this diagram over here what happens inside of the tent itself, where, I don't really like the names that they go with, but <clears throat> there's a table for the bread of presence, there's a lampstand, there's an altar of incense, and there's a veil that protects you from the holiest place. The, this is the holy place. And that's the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And that's, that's what God is laying out for Moses on Mount Sinai. And that's what, that's what Moses takes to the people in this narrative is the explanation of this. And by the way, this is what the Ark of the Covenant would have looked like. What I wanted to talk about here, first, Ray Vanderland, as he goes through it, it's kind of a cool way to look at it. He talks about this is God's dwelling place. It's kind of like his house. And this is his yard. That's like God's yard. Lots of people are welcome to come and hang out in the yard, but only some people, the priests, are allowed to go into the holy place. That's his living room. That's, that's for, for close family, you know, or close friends. They can come into his living room, but his bedroom, nobody's allowed in there. Only the high priest once, once a year to ask for atonement. So this is, that's how he kind of equates all this stuff. But what I wanted to look at, as we look at the tabernacle and see what God was doing and how he was instructing. The outer courtyard is very similar to most things that happen in the world at this time. That there's a place to offer sacrifices and there was a washing basin, there's an outer courtyard and then there's a tent that, there's, that the God stuff goes in. And so that's, that's pretty normal. But what's a little different is what they put inside. This table with the bread, the altar of incense and this lampstand. And what's kind of cool about each one of them is God gives them instructions on how to build them. And I know when you're reading your Bible, it gets a little dry, you know, especially since it goes over it twice and you're just like, ah. Um, but when you understand, when you get to see the whole picture, and that's why we're kind of looking at it from 
the entire scope of it, you kind of see and understand what God is up to here. That on this table, they were supposed to put bread of the presence. And so they were supposed to offer back to God some bread. And it was supposed to be there, and they were supposed to tend it and take care of it, and they were always supposed to have this offering to God. I think it's kind of like uh, an early form of tithing, that they were always supposed to be giving back out of what God has given them. And remember, as we talked about last week, each and every morning, they're waking up and they're receiving bread. It is on the ground, covering the ground with the dew in the morning, and they can go and gather. And this is them honoring that provision by giving back some of what God is giving to them, and they are honoring that, and they have this testimony to God's faithfulness by showing the bread that he has provided for them. And then this lampstand that he has them create, it's it's supposed to look like an almond tree, and there's... uh, three branches on either side, and so there's six, and then there's one in the middle, and so there's seven total lamps that they're supposed to keep and tend, and the priests are supposed to take care of it and make sure that it doesn't go out, and they have to keep tending it each and every day and making sure that it's, it's always lit. And what it looks kind of like, and this is what most of the, the scholars think, is that this is a representation of the burning bush. And God's faithfulness, it's a testimony of God's faithfulness because he heard his people and he sent Moses, he called Moses from the burning bush to go and rescue them. And so this lampstand is a testimony of God's faithfulness and how he rescued his people. He heard them, had mercy and and grace for them, and he went to save them. And then there's this altar of incense where they would pour out this fragrant offering to God. And they would pour, pour it onto this, this, these hot coals and it would steam. And there would be this cloud that emerged out of it. A lot of steam would come out of this. And it would, it would shroud and it, it would give them both a protection from God because they were honoring the fact that seeing God and being in the presence of God was dangerous and this cloud would, would in some ways protect them. But it was also a testimony of God's faithfulness in the cloud that he was providing for them each and every day to guide them and give them shade. And we talked about that last week, that God was guiding them with this cloud. And uh, so God's presence was seen in this cloud, and this is a, a testimony of that, that they were creating this cloud to protect from God's presence, but also to honor God's faithfulness as he was with them. And then finally, inside, past the veil, inside the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant rested, it would look like this where they, they had this acacia wood box and they, they inlaid it with gold and they outlaid it with gold and they put these two bars that were always there because you couldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant. And so when it was carried and transported, they had to just carry that. And there's, there's some fun stories of a guy that you know, wants, to, wants to save the Ark from falling and he touches it and dies immediately. Uh, so don't touch the Ark. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, you know this too. Don't open it up. Um, on the top of the Ark, there was two cherubim. And they, they kind of created this opening on it. So you, you see it just there, but there would also be an opening over the top. And it's in this, this void between the wings called the mercy seat that God would dwell. That God would be there with his people. When Moses came in to speak and come to the tent of meeting to meet with God and hear his voice and hear his instruction, when he would go to talk with God, that's where he would hear the voice of God come from, from the mercy seat. God's presence dwelled. It hovered over. A lot of connections with 
with creation. But again, another sermon for another day. But God would be there inside the ark. And we know this in, in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, we, we get an idea of what's inside the ark. And the author of Hebrews, nobody knows really who that is, but uh, the author of Hebrews wants us to know that there was three things in the ark. Aaron's budded staff, which is a, another story that we're not probably going to get to, but Aaron's budded staff was in there. And it, it's, it's a sign of God's calling, that God had anointed Aaron and his people, and the Aaron's staff had budded which means that this dead stick was alive. And that was showing that Aaron and his sons, they were called to be the, the priests. And so it was, a, it was a sign of God's anointing. And it was in the Ark of the Covenant. Another thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant was a jar of manna, once again representing God's provision. So they had a, jar, a golden jar of manna inside the Ark. And then the last thing that's in the Ark is the Ten Commandments, the tablets. Now, I learned this week, and it was one of these cool things, that um, it never specifies which one. I wanted to read Exodus 25 and 21 to you this morning, where it says this, and I'm reading out of the ESV, and I'll explain why that's important in a sec. When God is telling telling Moses how to create everything, and he's telling uh, Moses about the Ark of the Covenant, in the section about the Ark of the Covenant, he says this, and you shall put... The mercy seat on top of the ark, that's what we just talked about, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. So in Hebrew, this word testimony is is important. It's it's a story, it's telling, it's giving evidence of God and who he is, and God is going to tell Moses what testimony he wants inside of the ark, the, the evidence of God's faithfulness that he wants him to put in the ark to remember how good their God is and that he is with them. And what I learned this week as I was studying that, well, one, if you read NIV, by the way, I love the NIV. It's very easy to read. I, I use it with pretty much everything. I, I like to teach out of it because it's really easy to read and, and communicate with. However, sometimes it, it takes a translation and it misleads you just slightly. And this is one of those moments where I think it's important why I'm using the ESV instead, because the ESV is a little closer to the original Hebrew and Greek that the Bible was written in. Even though it's harder to read, It helps you understand. And the word that the NIV uses for testimony there is tablets. Put the tablets in. But God says testimony. And why I think that's important, because as we know, in Hebrews chapter 9, there was more than just the tablets in there. Moses didn't just put the the Ten Commandments in there. He put the testimonies of God's faithfulness to his people, Aaron's staff and and, uh, the the jar of manna and the Ten Commandments. And I'm going to speculate based on the research that I was doing this week, I think it might have been the broken Ten Commandments. And instead, there was two copies, right? Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, and as he was coming down the mountain, he encounters the people, and he breaks the Ten Commandments out of rage and anger. And then, later, God gives him another set of Ten Commandments for them to observe and learn from and grow in their relationship to understand their vows. And I think it was important for them to have those on display, to have them in amongst the people. And so when Moses puts the, the tablets and the Ten Commandments into the ark, I think what, he's, what he did was he put the broken pieces, which shows God's faithfulness in spite of their unfaithfulness. That Moses was impacted by the fact that God 
would continue to be their God. His presence would continue to go with them. And it meant so much to him. He wanted a testimony of God's faithfulness, so he put the broken Ten Commandments in there to show that even though God loved them and and was providing for them and taking care of them and they were unfaithful, God was going to continue to go with them. So I think, and again, this is just something I heard this week and I was like, wow, that, that actually means a lot to me and I think it's important. So what you're seeing here all throughout this, this tabernacle, is evidence, testimonies of God's faithfulness, his provision for them, his, his calling of Moses to, to rescue them, his presence among them, his faithfulness to them even though they're unfaithful to him. All of this is a testimony of God's faithfulness. The last lens that I want to look at today is how God's presence moves through Scripture. So we're going to read a few different passages. And we're going to see how God's presence moves from the tabernacle to the temple and to his, eventually, Jesus' disciples. And see the similarities that comes between them. So, Exodus chapter, or no, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 9. Verse 23 and 24, at the end of them constructing, they eventually do make this tabernacle and they create it. And then they, Aaron and his children, the, the priests that have been called and anointed, they consecrate the temple or the tabernacle. They consecrate it. And this is what happens after they do that. Verse uh, 23 and 24. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they f- shouted and fell on their faces. So after the tabernacle has been completed, they consecrate it and the glory of the Lord appears and fire comes out of the tabernacle and consumes the burnt offering outside in the, in the, the outer courtyard. Let's jump ahead to the, the consecration of the temple. So they they take the tabernacle with them, and as they're moving along in the wilderness, they keep that for a while until they eventually inhabit the land that God had promised them, and at some point, after King David, uh, Solomon, his son, would create the temple and build it, and that's where God's dwelling place would be for his nation, and this is what happens after they complete the temple, and Solomon uh, consecrates it and says a prayer. Chapter 7, verse 1, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, for he is good for a steadfast love endures forever. So once again, uh, they create a space for God amongst the people, this time a fixed place, and they, they, they construct the temple, again, according to God's instructions, and then when they finish it and they consecrate it and pray over it, God's glory comes down, burns the offering, and fills his house. And the people are overcome, and they fall face down, and they worship him. And then there's one more passage where God descends upon his people. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they had all come together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this, this scene is after Jesus had done his entire ministry and had already died and resurrected. There was 120 that were still faithful and praying and worshiping God. And on the day of Pentecost, the, the Spirit of the Lord, the glory of the Lord comes down in, in, in fire once again, but now it rests upon the people and fills them with the Holy Spirit. And now the house of the Lord is not the tabernacle or the temple, but it is his disciples. They are filled with his presence. The glory of the Lord is emanating from out of them, and they are given power and boldness and authority to share his word. So we see the presence of the Lord go from the tabernacle, where they created a space for God to move in their life and amongst their people, and they carried that with them, and then eventually they get to the promised land that he had given over to them, and he dwells there amongst them, and then eventually Jesus' disciples are praying and worshiping, creating a space for God to move, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them. I have three things that I want us to take away this morning. As we look at the tabernacle and what it represents, first thing that we have to do and understand is that we have to intentionally create space for God in our life. We have to intentionally create space for God's presence. That's what the tabernacle represented. God was telling Moses that what they needed to do was, it's not about the the details of what they created. It's not that we have to go home and in our backyards make a tabernacle. That's not how God's presence works. God's presence dwells where we create space for him. And so we have to, in our lives, be intentional in creating space for God's presence to dwell amongst us. That's what the Israelites did, and they kept that with them. As they took the, the, the tabernacle with them, the first thing that they would set up every time they set camp was the tabernacle. And then they, as Israelites, would dwell around it so that God's presence was in the very middle, and they knew that, that God's house, his dwelling place, was going to be right there in the middle of all of them. They intentionally created a space and were reminded of that all the time, of God's faithfulness and God's presence amongst them. And then when they got to the promised land, they created a temple, a fixed place to show that God was dwelling amongst their whole nation. We have to intentionally create space for God in our lives. And there's a lot of different ways that we could talk about how to do that. If you listen to Marty's Bema, he goes through a whole list of different spiritual disciplines where you can create space for God. But the important thing that you need to know is that you've got to do it. And there's some of you in this room, and I, I know because I've preached enough that I, I've had people come up to me after and be like, oh, pastor, thank you for preaching that. I really needed to hear that. You're absolutely right. I need to create more space in my life. Let me tell you, th- th- those of you that are in this room that are thinking that, you're probably doing a better job than you think. It's the ones in this room that are like, eh, whatever, I'm doing okay. You're the ones that probably need to create more space for God to work in your life. Not to call you out, but that's, that's generally what I've been experiencing. We need to be intentional about creating space for God's presence in our life. Take that seriously. The next thing I want you to know, God fills it. That's a guarantee. It's kind of a, it's kind of a promise, something that you can know and hang on to, but it's also some, it's a bit of a disclaimer. You create space, he will fill it. 
He will take that space, but you've got to create that space for him. You've got to create the space for God to dwell, and when you do, I promise you this, he will fill that space. The last thing that I wanted to share with you is that like the tabernacle, your life, now that, now that we see God's presence move from the tabernacle to the temple to his disciples, and if we believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit resides within us, our lives, like the tabernacle did, should display testimonies of God's faithfulness. And I want you to hear this. Hear this the right way, because I think sometimes we get this wrong. No, I think a lot of the times we get this wrong. Because what you might hear is your life should display testimonies of your faithfulness to God. That's what we think. That's what we walk away with, that I'm going to go and I'm going to be more faithful to God. I'm going to go and I'm going to be more obedient. I'm going to do more of these things. I'm going to display for the world how faithful I am. That's not what the tabernacle did. In fact, if there's anything, the tabernacle represented the opposite. It talked about how they were unfaithful, but God was still faithful. If we're going to be where God dwells and the world's going to see God through us, if we're going to be his royal priest showing and and reflecting his glory to the rest of the world, our lives need to display not testimonies of our faithfulness, but testimonies of God's faithfulness. Which might mean you have to open up about the things that you're not doing well, but that God is still with you. It might mean that you have to go out and fail so that God can be glorified. You might have to put yourself on display as weak so that God can show his strength. Our lives need to reflect God's faithfulness, not our own. Something that I'm working on, I'm wrestling with this morning. Even as I stand on this stage, I was thinking, okay, I need to preach well. And then God was like, no, that's not your job. My job isn't to reflect my faithfulness and how good I am. My job is to show you all that God is faithful. And us as a church, to the community around us, we are supposed to reflect God's faithfulness. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.